Good evening. I hope you're all hanging in there. You look fabulous, by the way. <laughs> One of the things that I, that I miss and sort of dread simultaneously is the mind state that you find yourself in when you have, know you have a Dharma talk to give in the evening and you have sort of all day to think about it. And one thing I've learned is the Dharma talk usually, or I find, always needs to be written in the hours before it's given. And I also realized that the last time I gave a Dharma talk was in this very room uh, for our New Year's retreat, me and Cheryl did, going into 2018. It's kind of been a minute. So this evening I'm going to talk about awakening um, and as it relates to our ultimate concern. So what does that mean? Well, I think the best thing to do is, I've read this many times, but I find it to be very powerful. This comes from Bhikkhu Bodhi's discourse on the Eightfold Path a search for a spiritual path. And of course, the title is The Way to the End of Suffering. The search for a spiritual path is born out of suffering. It does not start with lights and ecstasy, but with hard tacks of pain, disappointment, and confusion. However, for suffering to give birth to a genuine spiritual search, it must amount to more than something passively received from without. It has to trigger an inner realization, a perception which pierces through the facile complacency of our usual encounter with the world to glimpse the insecurity perpetually gaping underfoot. When this insight dawns, even if momentarily, it can precipitate a profound personal crisis. It overturns accustomed goals and values, mocks our routine preoccupations, and leaves old enjoyments stubbornly unsatisfying. At first, such changes are generally not welcome. We try to deny our vision and to smother our doubts. We struggle to drive away the discontent with new pursuits, but the flame of inquiry once lit continues to burn and we do not let ourselves be swept away by superficial readjustments or slouch back into a patched-up version of our natural optimism. Eventually, the original glimmering of insight will flare up again and confront us with our essential plight. It is precisely at this point, with all escape routes blocked, that we are ready to seek a way to bring our disquietude to an end. No longer can we continue to drift complacently through life, driven blindly by our hunger for sense pleasures and the pressure of prevailing social norms. A deeper, beckon, a deeper reality beckons us. We have heard the call of a more stable, more authentic happiness. And until we arrive at our destination, we cannot rest content. But it is just then when we find ourselves. Any of that ring true? All of it. 
And so he uses this word. I want to talk about a little bit about this idea of spirituality and religion. Um, in all honesty, I've learned so much more about the Dharma by looking outside of Buddhism than I have looking actually at the Buddhist tradition. And one of the people that I, I think is very helpful in this regard is a Christian existential philosopher, and he was a Lutheran Protestant theologian named Paul Tillich. I don't know if you've ever heard of Paul Tillich. He died in 1965. He's really understood as being one of the most influential theologians of our time. And his definition of religion is that which we are most ultimately concerned about. So it's very subjective. It has nothing to do with God or theosophy or any of these kind of ideas. It's a very personal thing. And in all honesty, if I were to put my cards a little bit more clearer on the table, I feel much more religious about the practice of Dharma than I do spiritual. It makes a lot more sense to me. Because it really does put all of us in touch with our most essential plight. And that our most essential plight is really largely an existential dilemma. And for the Buddha, it was the same. His plight was an existential plight. The big question, why are we here? What is this all for? What does this mean? What am I supposed to do with this? Or about this? Or for this? Like it or not, we are philosophical creatures. And I think a lot of our suffering, our existential angst, as the existentialists call it, has to do with kind of being here. And Paul Tillich wrote this fabulous book called The Courage to Be. And he says to actually even be alive in this world takes so much courage. In many ways, I think Paul Tillich was a Buddhist. Because when you read his writings and his thinking, it's very, very much more of a Dharma way of approaching things. He, was, he also inspired people like Thomas Merton, a lot of Christian mystics. And one of the, the great things that I had the fortune of doing was living in Tennessee, in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was very much involved in Christian culture because Christian culture is very alive and well in Nashville, Tennessee. And it really helped me actually put aside my kind of contempt or my attitude about religion and sort of thinking, you know, I'm better than that. Some of the most wonderful people that I met down there were people who were really hardcore Christians. In fact, one of the people who's probably directly responsible for me sitting here right now is a guy named Paul Pratt, who was the head of spirituality at a treatment center called Cumberland Heights. Who was, he was a recovering alcoholic. He got in all this trouble at his church, uh, sleeping with different people in the church and with an alcoholic, and he got sober, and he got this job at this treatment center. And he, he and I became very fast friends, and he actually would let me, and people were very upset, he would let me teach the Sunday spirituality uh, group. It was basically church at the treatment center, and he would let me talk about mindfulness and, and dharma. So a lot of the early invitations I got to really teach were provided by Christians in the Deep South. So I always have to remember that because I think 
being intelligent people as we are, we can kind of assume or we can kind of find ourselves in this posture of feeling morally superior than other ways of thinking. And so if I were to put my cards even a little bit more clearer on the table, my ultimate concern really is to try to attempt to offer and present an authentic lineage of teachings that go back to the historic Buddha, back to the time and the place of 5th century BC India. And also at the same time honoring and respecting the many teachers that I've met in this lineage. And really the fact of the matter is that I really stand on the shoulder of giants. Steve Smith, Steve Armstrong, Joseph Goldstein, Ajahn Suchito, Noah Levine. Absolutely. It would be unfair for me to not mention his name. And that there is this kind of expression of gratitude that we can have, or that I can try to have, of being a receiver and a recipient of something that is, that is rich. You know, that goes back to the early 1900s, the Sayadaw, the Burma, Mahasi Sayadaw, Sayadaw, Pandita, Ubakin, Goinka. There's all this stuff comes from that. And to some degree, I think it's even safe to say that if we could follow the trail of breadcrumbs, that if we went from this moment backwards, I believe that every single moment between this moment here and the time of the Buddha, somebody somewhere was taking a mindful breath. And there's like, somebody somewhere was doing that. Millions of people over thousands of years have done this. And it would not have lasted and survived this long if it didn't have some value. And the thing that I think is so valuable about this is this perspective can really build trust and build confidence that we are engaged in something that is actually truly authentic. Something that actually really has some teeth. Now whether that's spiritual or religious, it doesn't really matter so much. I feel, honestly, and I'm almost reluctant to say it, but I feel much more uh, that I'm involved in a religious endeavor than a spiritual endeavor. Because it puts me in touch with that in which I am most ultimately concerned. And I'm not always totally sure what that is. But I think ultimately it is a sense of, uh, at the end of the day, it's an existential philosophical plight question that I, that I sit with. It's not about accomplishing some goal or developing some technique to not be in pain anymore, to not suffer anymore. I think that that is a naive. I mean, if you can really think it through, what would like what would like even be like if we didn't suffer a little bit? Would you even want that? Just to go around and feel good all the time? It's so boring. So sometimes I think we have to be realistic, and I think we have to deal with our own, as the existentialist call us, there's an angst there. There's an existential angst. There's a kind of, right, you know, this kind of nagging feeling in the mind. Uh, and I think that, that that can really prompt 
as Bhikkhu Bodhi calls it, this profound spiritual crisis, and into searching for a more authentic, more way to live that's in line with our subjective sense of what's important. And over the last 10 years, when I think about two things, I can think about the Buddha as an iconic world figure, as an iconic figure of probably represents human potential, human perfection, that points to the possibilities of what this human life can be like. But when, when, we, when we're talking about the Buddha, we have to be very clear that we're talking about you. You are the Buddha. And so when we think about it as an iconic representation of the human experience, we're not talking about this kind of ancient figure. We're talking about this iconic capacity, potential, that you, yes, you too have the capacity to have this awake mind. And then also I've been very, probably the most accurate word would be obsessed with uncovering also this man, this historic figure named Siddhartha Gautama, who I, in my mind, I have to see him and the Buddha as different things. And when I think about the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, I really have to see him as a person who lived in a time and a place in a world no different than us. He really was a human being who had all of the same concerns, worries, plights, pains, aspirations that we did. And the more human he becomes, the more willing I am to embrace his teachings and his practice because it's not this elevated sense of perfection or enlightenment, which is the word I don't use. And so when we look back at his time and place, I think it's important to go back and realize he was subject, subject to the conditioning of his world, of his culture, of his parents. And there's actually a lot of confusion about his world. And one of the reasons why I like to look outside of the world of Buddhism is one of the places you can look is in the world of anthropology, in history, and we know that in 5th century BC India, there were no palaces in ancient India. The Buddha did not grow up in a Brahmanic culture society. He did not grow up in a Hindu society. He grew up in a tribal community. He was really much more of, of, a, of an indigenous person than he was somebody of the world or somebody of um, status. His family were probably like the richest farmers who owned slaves on the Gangetic Plain and grew crops and lived in probably a pretty nice mud hut structure. But when I think about what I was talking about earlier today in the Dharma in the natural world, which is actually this big movement that actually is mimicking the secular Dharma movement that's spearheaded by people like Andrew Olinsky and Gil Fronsdale that they call naturalistic Dharma, which is which is making a comparison between the Dharma and the natural world, the cool warmth of the sun, of the shade, and trying to make these connections, that this is not some other thing, this is actually in everything. 
And he, his tribe were, was called the Sakyans, which meant they were worshippers of the sun. So they would have, their religion, their spiritual practice would have been, their god, if you will, was the sun. Because the sun provided light and warmth and allowed them to grow their crops and allowed them to provide nutrients and sustenance and have abundance. So it would make a lot of sense if you lived in a world like that. You'd be like, yeah, the sun's obviously the best thing around. It wasn't this mystical kind of God, uh, you know, one with the universe idea. That stuff came much later. And if you think about the way he, what the Buddha thinks or how his conditioning would have played out, what are two key things that the sun would represent? Well, the sun would clearly represent light or wisdom, illumination, being able to see clearly. The, the, the mind of illumination, the ability that we have are to see, to observe. The more light, the more you can see. So the, there's a, a strong correlation. That's why the term enlightenment came later. But it's more about the Buddha was understanding that the, the light was what allowed him to navigate the, the world, the phenomenological, physical world. And also the light, the, the, the warmth of the sun would would mimic the warmth of compassion, the warmth of kindness, the warmth of survival, that you know, we can't survive if it's too cold. And also, if you play this out a little further, the sun is a huge representative of cultivation, which was really the, the, the work of the day, the Gangetic Plain was an alluvial plain. It was some of the richest farming soil in the world at the time. And they would have known the, the very idea of a seed and a fruit. And, and, and when, he, when he talks about what he does, what he's doing with our mind, the word that he uses over and over again, whether it's sati or mindfulness or metta or compassion, is bhavana, which literally means to cultivate. It means to take something and bring it into being. So there's a lot of labor, there's a lot of effort, there's a lot of work to take an idea and actually manifest it into, uh, into being. And that's what cultivation is. So we talk, we talk about metta bhavana, the cultivation of kindness. We talk about karuna bhavana, sati bhavana, dana bhavana, the gen- cultivation of generosity and goodwill. All these practices that you know so well are all under the heading of bhavana to cultivate, to take something that is already there and bring it into being, which is another dimension of, is, to put my cards again a little bit more clear on the table, is to really hope that you can find and see and develop something that's actually already there. These seeds of potential, these things, they're, they're there, they came they came with the equipment. You know, they, you're born into this potential experience. So the idea of not being able to do it or being guided by doubt or I'm not going to be able to, it's not going to work for me, it probably work for you, but probably not for me because I really have all this trauma and my life has been so hard. And all that is totally irrelevant. None of that matters.
so then we can think about our own plight, our own struggle. And that's as relevant as the objective kind of views of, of the Dharma, and that we are all probably going somewhere differently. There's probably as many ultimate concerns in this room as there are people in this room. I'm sure there's lots of universal overlap. But one of the things that the Buddhist tradition does, I think that's a problematic thing, especially when we get into things like the self or the not-self, is there's a tendency to feel as though we have to somehow abandon our subjective experience in search of this other thing. Which I've done, and and it's very painful to do that. First of all, you can't do that anyway. Good luck. Have you tried to abandon certain parts of yourself and they just follow you around like a puppy dog? (laughs) How come you don't like me? (laughs) Don't go anywhere. So then we have to think about, you know, how did we get here? You know, our own personal histories, our own personal struggles, our own personal traumas, our own personal insights, our own personal aspirations. And if we're honest, right, you didn't get here because things have been a breeze. And so when I was reading that thing earlier today about, you know, out of the soil of metta, the beautiful bloom of compassion arises and is watered by tears of joy under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. I think what we really have to get honest and very clear about is what is actually in the soil. Even before the seed of metta gets put into the ground and makes that initial sprout, what is in your soil? And as you all know, vegetables and fruit and produce do not grow well in beautiful white Malibu beach sand. Do they? No, they grow really well in dense, dark, chicken shit, manure, poop, dukkha. <laughs> we live in this small town, Colorado, called Paonia, and we have this, we have these like turbo, turbo hippies in our town who are like super into growing weed and they're, they're soil like, they're like soil obsessed. And there's a company called the Paonia Soil Company, which is a famous soil company. People all over the country order Paonia soil to grow weed in, basically, because it's the best soil in the world to grow weed in. And if you hang out with these guys, which I do once in a while because they're hilarious, we call them the stony jabronis because they're always so baked out of their mind. And they're really interesting, but they love to talk about how, like, the nastiest shit that's in their dirt. Like, we have the nastiest. And they, like, seek out... They like know what chickens make, you know, the nastiest crap. And they seek out those particular kinds of chicken. Right? So the better the dukkha, the better the fruit. <laughs> right? Wouldn't that make sense? This is why I think it's so important that we... Uh, and so, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but I think it's important to acknowledge that if the Buddha grew up in a time and a place where he saw this manifesting in the natural world, I think what he was getting at was like, well, if it's true out there, it's probably true in here. Is the external world 
in the internal world subject to the same systems, the same cultivation. And that's the question, I think, that we have to sit with. And I don't see how, I, I, I have no problem with that. That makes sense. If it happens out there, it probably happens in here. And so one of the things that happens, that I think there's a correlation that needs to be made, is that a lot of times our primary concern is also very deeply connected to our primary wound. That what happens, I think, for most of us is however and whenever that gets installed or there's a delivery of a wound, then what happens is there's a concern that develops around that that says we need to make sure this doesn't happen again. Right? Which, honestly, you can't really necessarily do. You can't. There's no guarantee that you can really protect yourself from anything. Not that that's bad or wrong, but a lot of times we start, and this starts very early on, we start to develop these kind of strategies, these protective strategies, these concerns um, that are born out of something that we're not completely familiar or aware of. And this, and this is what's called a dukkha sankara. So the installation or the experience of that kind of primary wound that we have, what arises out of that is a kind of habit, a sankara habit that says, hey, we need to do something to make sure this doesn't happen again, which is very reasonable and natural and important. But as you've probably noticed, that can get kind of out of hand. Drug addiction is probably the most extreme manifestation of that. If I don't feel anything, there's no problem. Just knock out the whole feeling thing altogether. Right? Makes sense. And so I think as we kind of get into touch with our primary concern, our ultimate concern, and our primary kind of sense of wound, which is really kind of the soil, the dukkha in there, is one of the things that we have to learn how to do, and it's very difficult, is to suspend or to divorce or to overcome the destructive narrative that we've developed around that experience. And that is, that dukkha sankara manifests in, in our, the way we see ourselves, the way we see our world. It, it, man, it, it manifests in so many ways, it's that deep neural structure that gets imprinted that by the time we start meditating when we're 18 or 20 or 30 or 50, we're sitting and a lot of times what we're waking up to is these habit patterns that have been running and running and running for decades. There's a story, one of my favorite teachers, and a good friend of mine, Temple Smith, makes this analogy that's so good where he talks about in, in Burma, uh, and up in the mountains in the villages, they have these ox carts. And these ox carts, you know, there's ox and they have a carriage on the back and they carry rice and, you know, they carry supplies back and forth from one village to another. And some of these ox cart trails have been there for hundreds, probably thousands of years. And the, and the trail, the ox cart trail, because it's ridden in the same spot, the, the, the holes, the tire holes are like this deep. And the joke is that the ox cart driver can actually take a nap 
while the ox cart's going to the next village because there's no way that that ox cart is going to come off those tracks because they're this deep. And so in what ways have we fallen asleep to these deeply embedded, we call them neural structures, these habituations that we've developed that are trying to protect us from something that happened a long time ago. And so we have to be, I don't know even know what the word is, we have to be more thoughtful, we have to be more aware, we probably need to communicate this, we have to become as clear as we can about what our actual primary or ultimate concern is. And is that realistic, is it possible? And what are some of these habit patterns that I need to actually work with, I need to kind of overcome these because they're destructive. And very well-intentioned. The mind is actually, at the end of the day, trying to help you survive. It really is. As misguided as it might be, its intentions are quite good. It just doesn't know a lot of why it's doing what it's doing. <coughs> and so in the earliest explanation that the Buddha offers about what he awoke to, it starts right, it's one of the, basically the first thing that comes out of his mouth as far as we know when he gives his discourse on the Four Noble Truths, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. He says, I have awoke to a middle way. And it's interesting, he uses the word awake, which is bodhi in Pali, B-O-D-H-I, bodhi. That I think it confused a lot of people at the time because it wasn't a word that was used in a kind of context in terms of um, a kind of spiritual or religious goal. To be awake just means I was sleeping and now I'm awake. That's really what the term bodhi means. Awake is the same as the English term, like, you know, you wake up in the morning, right? And so there was a lot of confusion. Well, what, what does he mean he's awake? He, he, he coined that term. He said, I'm awake. I'm not in touch with the ultimate nature of the universe. I'm not one with Akman. I'm brown. All this other stuff you're doing, that's not what's going on for me. I've awoke to what he calls the middle way. And I think in a, in a secular context, in a very modern context, the middle way that he's talking about is a middle way that's somewhere between poverty and capitalism. And because we're not monastics, because we're secular people, we do require, I believe, a certain level of comfort. You know, and even the Buddha said, you can't practice the Dharma if you're in poverty. If your basic needs are not met, if you're worried about food and shelter and medicine, if you're homeless in America, a Dharma practice is not really what you need. You need some lunch. And this used to really bother me, not to go down on a tangent, but there's, in, in the mindfulness world that I, that, I, that I live in and lived in for so much of the time, there's a lot of times this well-intentioned of we need to go into these inner cities and we need to go into these uh, neighborhoods that don't have these things and teach them mindfulness and the Dharma because it's so important. It's like, actually, no, we need to give them some food and medicine. And that's also a very kind of white way of thinking. 
Right? And the Buddha said this 2,500 years ago, which is why when people, when he set up the monastic community, the monks, they got food, they got shelter, they got medicine. Even 2,500 years ago, the monks got medicine. Some of us don't even got medicine. He said, he said, you have to have your basic needs met. You have to have a degree of comfort and stability if you're going to engage in this courageous practice. So, 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 so we, we don't want to have it. And, I, and I, I've had it much of my life, I think. I, I was driven by a poverty mentality. I don't know if you can relate to that poverty mentality, but a lot of times it's rooted in some very destructive things of like, I don't deserve good things. Or I'm not going to get them anyway. And also, in, in my Buddhist practice, uh, I allowed my Buddhist practice to play into that of I should be able to do without. And I lived a lot of my adult life like that, and it was very painful. Feeling like if I was a good Buddhist and I was doing the practice, I wouldn't need a decent car or a nice house or whatever. Which I think is actually unhelpful. And at the same time, we want to find this middle way between capitalism, between trying to think that we need to get, we need to kind of be on that hedonic treadmill and we need to get more and more and more and more and more. So there's a, there's a, there's a sweet spot here, I think, that we need to find. And this is also very, very subjective. Right? And so we have to assess and evaluate what is it that we actually need because we know if we become too capitalistic, in our pursuit for goods and materials and success and money, that we don't get to come on retreats like this and we don't have time to practice. We're too busy. And then we get in the glorification of busy. I'm a busy, successful person who makes lots of money. I'm totally fucking miserable, but I've got... And that's a, that's a difficult temptation to overcome. And then also there's another way to look at awakening. There's, there's the two sides of the coin that, that what am I awakening from? So what is the experience of being asleep? Versus what am I awakening to? What is the experience of being awake versus the experience of being asleep? And the Buddha's a lot more clear and a lot more concrete about describing the experience of being asleep. He actually doesn't say a lot about what being awake looks like. He leaves that to you, which I think is quite nice. He leaves that to us. That's your job. And also I think we have to understand that being awake isn't necessarily enjoyable or pleasant, or feeling good. Being awake just means being awake. You ever wake up in the morning and feel like shit and want to go back to bed? Yeah, half the time. Right, so he's not saying that being awake is necessarily even profound. He's just saying that it's an option. And in the earliest stratum, the, the earliest description of being awake or being asleep, he talks about there being these fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, as they're traditionally called. 
And in, in later school, the Buddhism, they call them the poisons or the taints, which I think misses the better picture of the analogy of fire. And so the Buddha, really big on analogies and metaphors, and he uses the analogy of fire to describe a kind of burning, a kind of suffering, a kind of holding back, tanha, craving. All of the teachings on the Second Noble Truth, as they're called, are all under the metaphor of fire, of a burning quality. Greed burning to, needing to have, needing to get rid of, and I think actually in, our, in the context of what's most accurate, I think delusion is not the right term. I don't even think confusion is the right term. I think it's actually fear. It's greed, hatred, and fear. I want this. I don't want that. I'm afraid I'm not going to get this. I'm afraid I'm going to get that. And that has a burning quality to it. It's a tanha, or an upadana, craving, clinging, feeding. In a really kind of interesting visual metaphor, he talks about tanha, craving, reactivity, clinging, as the logs that lick, the, the, the flame that licks the logs as you kind of watch a fire burn. That it's the same thing in the mind, it's just... The, the, the flames are, are, are extracting, they're burning, they're taking. And who doesn't like a nice campfire, right? So it's like, it's tricky. Fire's not bad or wrong. And then he says the, the other analogy is that Nibbana, what he's offering, the experience of being awake, is an experience of coolness. Which again is another play and metaphor on metta, or Nibbana. Nibbana is cool. It's not cold. It's not indifferent. It's cool, which also means it's warm. Right? 70 degrees is cool and warm, isn't it? It's both. And so there's this kind of sweet spot in the mind, in the heart, in the body, where we can notice this kind of cool warmth. And Nibbana really just is an ancient Indian cooking term that means to have been removed from the flame. So we can remove our mind, we can remove our heart, we can, we can, we can actually make that movement away, away from the flame of the burningness. But this is done only moment to moment to moment, only to once again return the pan back to the hot stove. It's not an event that happens, it's not a one-time thing, it's a, it's a continued practice. Just like you wake up every single day, you fall asleep every single night. I think if you reflect back on the day today, you can probably start to recognize there were moments where you were probably awake. There were probably moments where you were asleep. Not physically asleep, but asleep into that. Wanting my life to be different. Wanting the retreat to be better. This kind of uh, low-grade burning of greed, of like wanting the experience to be different. Which is a very subtle, very, very subtle. But that's where it starts, doesn't it? I don't want it to be like this. I don't want to be like this. I want it to be different. I need it to be different. When's it going to be different? How do I make it different? Dharma talk, you better tell me how to make it different. I'm fucking leaving. <laughs> right. And you're sleeping. 
You're not in touch with the phenomenological world. You're not in touch with the cool warmth of the air. You're not in touch with the body. You're, you're gone. What the Buddha calls papancha, mental proliferation. So then the question becomes, well, there's these two sides of the coin, there's being asleep, there's being awake. And then there's, well, what did he do? How do, how do you do that? And do you even want to? There's this, I'm sure you, most of you, if not all of you, have seen the movie The Matrix, which is an unbelievably great play on this kind of idea. To the point where even Robert Wright who wrote the book Why Buddhism is True, in the first chapter of his book, who's an evolutionary psychologist, actually the whole first chapter of his book is a metaphor to the movie The Matrix. And just as a side note, when Keanu Reeves was training to be in The Matrix, the Wachowski brothers asked him to read Robert Wright's first book called The Moral Animal. So that way Keanu Reeves could get this kind of um, scientific understanding of really what the Buddha say. It's a book, wonderful book, very unfun to read, called The Moral Animal. His second book, Why Buddhism is True. And he uses this analogy. And I think a lot of people, if, if hard-pressed, would be like, yeah, I'm happy to just be asleep. Really. And I notice that sometimes in my life, I'm happy to just be asleep and just sit here and look at my goddamn phone. Not that that's bad or wrong, but, but, there's a, but what is the quality of mind that kind of gives in to that? Because right? I'm looking for something in some kind of digital trash heap that's going to give a pleasant feeling in the mind. Right? And again, we have to get out of this thinking that this is somehow bad and wrong and like we shouldn't do that if we want to be awake. But we need to understand that this is a deeply embedded neural structure. This is something that is going to happen. And so this is why so much of the emphasis of the practice is on effort and mindfulness and being awake and really waking up to developing a mind state that you want to live inside of. What's it like in there? It gets bad in there, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but it gets really bad in here sometimes. I'm like, I fucking do not like it in here. And then I look outside of my experience to find something else to go into because I don't want to do the work or I don't want to deal with or I don't want to do whatever it is to try to overcome. And I, don't, I think what happens is there's an absence of courage. <coughs> and I sort of fall asleep. I just kind of fall asleep. And usually what I fall asleep into is a dream, which can be easily defined as whatever the kind of underlying destructive narratives I have running about who this Dave Smith character is and what it means to be this person. And, and I'm, I, I honestly continue to be completely overwhelmed and humbled by how strong and how deep those tire tracks are. I can just slide right in, and I'm right there. It's like on the, I'm like on the Santa Monica freeway doing 80 miles an hour. It's so easy to get in that lane. And when we talk about cultivation of a path, I actually don't know the true context of this word, Pollywood Maga, which is translated as path. I'm not sure if it means path. 
I don't think it does because I don't feel like there's a path that you just kind of walk down. I think it's like more like you get dropped off at the bottom of the jungle and somebody hands you a machete. It says, yeah, you got to chop that way. It really feels a lot more like that, doesn't it? The idea of a path sounds so nice, you just get on it and just stroll down the path, the Dharma path. It would be so nice. It just doesn't, I haven't had that experience very much at all. And so then, you know, how, 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 how do you do this, right? And I think really what happened for the Buddha as a person, Siddhartha Gautama as a person, who went and wanted to answer this ultimate question, this ultimate concern of what does it actually mean to be here? He bastard and tried and met with all the spiritual religious teachers of his time and really rejected everything. And I think out of his own deep sense of frustration and confusion and existential crisis, he literally sat down and just started watching. Just really sat down. And really what he woke up to in the, in the most original sense is the phenomenological world. The world of five senses arising and passing. The world of a body, the world of a breath. The, the, really the phenomenological world. And said, so this is what's real. At the bottom of it all, this is what's actually happening. And I have these feelings. Uh, I have these feelings I chase to get. I have these feelings I chase to get rid of. And he said, oh, there's something going on here. That actually, there's a kind of behavior. The Dharma, one way to think about the Dharma is law or behavior, that when we sit and watch, one of the things that you see is this whole thing, whatever this is, experience, life, the mind, has a kind of play momentum of its own, if you notice. It just does stuff. All by itself. With or without your permission. Doesn't care what you think one iota. And I think that that's what he woke up to. And he said, okay, there's something going on here. That there's no other place to get to. There's no God. There's no ultimate power of the universe. That he said that, that's, that the problem is trying to do that. That actually what we really need to do is to come right into direct experience itself. And how you do that is you sit and you watch and you notice and you pay attention and you learn. I find it very odd. There's a poly term called apalapala, which is a fun word that I learned from John Peacock recently. That is the aspect of sati or mindfulness that means to learn. Now, it's interesting to me because mindfulness is so popular in our culture and it's very popular in the education world that nobody had, has made the connection to see that mindf- largely what mindfulness is and what this retreat experiences is you're learning. What are you learning? And the hard part is you really aren't... Be careful that you don't start arguing with what's being learned. It's being open. I'm learning this. Oh, I'm learning. Oh, yes, I am. I am watching that my mind is constantly trying to get this and trying to get rid of that and is scared of this. It's doing that all by itself. Not my fault. I'm waking up to that experience. And then so what is the outcome of being awake? Do we ever actually fully stay awake? I don't think so. I think what we're dealing with is a slow learning curve where over time, gradually over time, and you probably can all assess this, some of you have been at this for a while, 
Do you notice that you're much you're awake a lot more of the time than you once were? So we move the needle, right? It's just like like a tenth of a percentage point at a time, slowly, slowly, slowly. We live into the experience of being awake. And again, that doesn't mean it's enjoyable. That doesn't mean it's pleasant. Doesn't mean it's absent of confusion or greed or contempt or shame. Doesn't mean any of those things. It just means that you're awake. And that wake, in that, in that, that nibbana, that awakening, does not come at the end of cultivating some, this eightfold path. It's that experience of being awake, that third noble truth, that nibbanic, that awakening, that lets you get onto the path. Lets you have, and it begins by having a more accurate view on things. An accurate, more accurate view on what is my ultimate concern? What is my primary wound? In which ways am I giving in to these deep groove habit patterns? It gets us more in touch with our values. How do you want to live? And that's very subjective. I think the Dharma offers us great ideas with great ethics, Brahma Viharas, um, precepts. The Buddha has lots of suggestions, but they're not, they're not commandments. They're, there's no thou shalt not here. The Buddha doesn't do any of this moralistic finger-wagging at his business. And it's what the existentialists call a raison d'etre, our reason to be. What is your reason to be? I think the existentialist thinkers, Heidegger, Camus, Sartre, even Tillich, who was a Christian existentialist, are some of the greatest thinkers of modern time and very Dharma thinkers. Freedom and responsibility. You're free to do whatever you want. I could take that bell right now and throw it through that window if I wanted to. Not going to do that, obviously. But I'm free to do that, ain't I? And, but with that comes the responsibility. And so the Dharma awakening, the practice is to really try to wake up to our sense of sila, or integrity, or goodness. How do you want to behave? How do we develop beautiful behavior? Which is, the path factors are, are built into that. The ethics, sila. Speech, action, livelihood, these things. How do we want to behave in this world? Knowing and seeing all of the harm and all of the destruction in the world. Waking up to the fact that I don't want to contribute to that. And this word that's also correlated with awakening bodhi is vimuti, which is the word for liberation. And when you look at religion or you look at the study of liberation, it's, it's under this title called soteriology. Soteriology is the study of salvation, if you were to study it at a college or a university. And Buddhist salvation, Buddhist soteriology, liberation, is very, very different, actually, than all of the other. If you put all of the world figures, religious figures on the stage, the Buddha is an odd character on that stage because he's offering two kinds of liberation. Liberation, panya vimuti, liberation through wisdom, through understanding, through seeing clearly, which unfortunately in the Buddhist world gets the elevated sort of wisdom, the real shit, and this other thing, compassion. Liberation through citta, citta vimuti, liberation through the heart. 
And one would argue, many would argue, I would argue, that for those of us who are not living in the monastery, those of us who are seeking a kind of awakened liberation experience, we are being tasked with the burden of developing a chitta-vamuti, a liberation of heart, a liberation of behavior. And so those are kind of the two camps of thinking. Of course, they're both interconnected. You need to have some wisdom to have this. But we're not trying to, at least I'm not, and I don't suspect you are, I'm not trying to deny in any way, shape, or form the pleasantness and the hedonic pleasure and joy of the world. I like to watch good movies and read good books and buy Transformers for my kids and, you know, all of that. So we're not trying to cut that out so much as the monastic tradition kind of emphasizes this, like, this idea that you really, that if you were liberated, you wouldn't want anything. I think that that's, that, that's a really dangerous idea for us to adopt. Shouldn't want anything because I'm just craving and clinging and all of that. It's a very big mistake to fall into that trap. Because that's not part of your game, is it? That's not what you're doing. You could do that if you wanted to. That's not. I hope the monastic Buddhist tradition, I feel like I'm a really good friend to Buddhism. Right? I hope that that continues. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do that. So I have to do this actually harder work, it seems like. And trying to constantly negotiate that kind of felt sense of what I think I need versus what I think I want and trying to negotiate where is there and where is there is there a kind of a sweet spot or maybe a sweet zone somewhere between a kind of poverty mentality and a capitalistic kind of you know drive how much is enough you get to choose there's no rule on that but I don't know if you've noticed that you live in the world, as you have a family in the world, as you work in the world, as you deal with money in the world, isn't this kind of a conundrum that you find yourself in much of the time? Why do I work so much? Why do I work so much? Because well, I need this stuff. Why well, do I need this stuff? And, you know, in the last, to say, lastly, like I said last night about this motorcycle accident, one of the things that, that I really woke up to, is I, and I've spent half of my adult life living in rural places and half of my adult life living in the city, is one of the things that I woke up to by seeing some of the greed and some of the kind of capitalistic uh, movements that Dharma teachers can kind of go after for in our culture. I was waking up to the fact that if I'm going to like ask people for money to do this, like I can't. I need to put myself in a situation where I can not be so needing resources. Which is why I moved to the middle of nowhere. I'm actually much happier there. My nervous system is much happier. <laughs> but we have to, we all have to negotiate this. And some of, you, uh, some of you have done this. We talk all the time. We have to make these, what kind of feel like big epic moves. We, maybe we have to move somewhere or we have to leave a job or we have to take a job. That this is not something the monastic Buddhist world even has to deal with. But how much of your angst in your inner conflict is kind of in this space? 
and in which ways do we feel bad about ourselves for the things that we want. And this, of course, we'll get much more into this in the, in the months to come. This is kind of where all this is heading. So the kind of last frame that I'll offer is we can use the Dharma, I think, as a map. I think that's really at best what it is. It's a map. But the map is for you to learn how to navigate and find your way around your territory, your subjective territory, yourself. Because I would imagine it's very, very, very different inside each and every one of us. Our territories are very unique, very subjective. And I think as we transform and as we wake up, there's this constant kind of learning how to negotiate the map and the territory, the map and the territory. So that way we ultimately feel good about the mind that we live inside. And if you change your mind, you change the world. I think that's the most profound idea. Because your mind and the world are the same thing, actually. In the early Buddhist tradition, the idea that there's a world, that which is really out there, is not even a concept. They don't even buy, they don't buy into that at all. They're saying, you made that. All of the confusion and the fear and the trauma and the aspirations, all of that stuff, you just project that out and say, yes, this is the world. It's just a mirror manifestation of your internal experience. That might be a little bit hard to wrap your head around. But I think if you pay attention and notice, you'll find out that it's pretty true, actually. So if you change the internal landscape, if you better learn your way around your own territory and make the changes that you need, you will live in a safer more easeful, more kind, more caring, more understanding world. And so as we do all of these things, this is what waking up is. Waking up is a verb. Being awake is not a state in which one arrives into. It's a process in which one cultivates slowly over time. It's a verb. So I offer this for your reflection this evening. Thank you for your time. Let's just sit for a few minutes.